Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And my guest today is Eric Lomen. And Eric is the owner-operator at Maine Cap and Stem, a certified organic supplier of commercial-grade ready-to-fruit substrate and spawn. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Tell me a little bit about, you know, your first experience with mushrooms. Yeah, it's hard to say. I think I hated mushrooms as a kid, which is really pretty predominantly normal in the United States. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and as soon as I sort of, uh, had an inkling for any of the psychedelic side, I think I realized that there were other mushrooms other than edible, you know, soup can mushrooms. Um, and then I, I think somewhere along the lines, uh, I just started really sort of finding little articles here or there and sort of realizing that the, uh, the mushroom world was a lot bigger and longer lasting than I thought, you know, Mm. when you find these articles from the fifties or little like cut out uh, advertisements of a shiitake farm in fall river mass, yeah, you know, the, the late fifties or the sixties, you're like, this has been around a while. This is interesting. And these are mushrooms I've never heard of. Well, Um, back then the technology must've been so different. You would think so. Right. And then, uh, my, my business partner, Christopher, his wife, uh, sent me this video of like, um, it was like, it had to be like the forties, fifties and in Kennett square in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And essentially they're doing the same thing we're still doing in terms of expanding and, uh, inoculating that the process really has never changed, you know? Mm. And I think that's really interesting. So the mushrooms look different. More people are becoming, uh, cognizant of the varieties, but the mm-hmm. process to, to how you do things, technologically speaking, is the same, you know, um, it's everything else around the, the ether of cultivation that really is starting to change, which is cool. Yeah. The technology in the grow rooms and, uh, yeah, yeah I think the substrates have changed a little bit. Um, yeah. and, uh, I, the varieties too are starting to change, which is kind of fun because we're seeing some new strains pop up. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like what everybody asks every day from our side is what do you got new? (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, well, easy. (laughs) So talk to me about when you, when you actually were in business growing mushrooms, what, what, what was that? What what was like, was there a specific date or was it like, Oh, people are buying our stuff and now we're actually doing this. Yeah. My, uh, my late wife and I had moved up to Portland in 2009 to 2010 somewhere right around there Uh that's when we began sort of uh in conjunction like researching and reading about growing mushrooms and uh on like the gourmet level and it it immediately was sort of uh real to us and we're like this is something we could do so we sold everything we owned um in an effort to just get on the road travel kind of like do the you know hitchhike Uh around and farm thing and uh we ended up at a farm out in chino valley in arizona And it was just a couple who sort of came from the valley, uh, from the pharmaceutical world and from the tech world and had noticed that we were uh, sort of researching and reading about different, you know, forms of uh, mushroom cultivation, different books and such. And they basically just gave us the go ahead. And then it was really, uh, it was just Roger Rabbit and the Shroomery and uh, some books, you know, but they're, they're kind of hard to find. And within 
a year we had set up a facility there and we're and we're starting to grow um mm. and that was so that would have been like 2011 into 12 and that was okay. the first sort of iteration of like oh and and through the micro wizards podcast i've been like really realizing um i'm finding all of these weird connection points brooks from far west fungi was at yeah. aloha at the time uh joey schlegel from mana mushrooms and aloha was out there at the time none of us knew one another i was ordering cultures from aloha because they were the only place to go to you know yeah <laughs> but we didn't know one another and now like years and years later you're like wow we're in the same sort of geographical location at the same time getting into the same stuff you know yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's great Very to see cool. that. Yeah. So you started growing mushrooms and what were your sales outlets for at that point? At that point, it was it was merely just like small, um, tiny versions of what can we grow. Um, at the time, it was like uh, hard to find anything but, uh, you know, um, arborists in that area who could mm. give you chips and, and you just figure out what to do. So very quickly, I got out of Arizona and sort of left them with a pretty well working farm. And, uh, and we came back to Maine and I met my now business partner, Christopher. And that's, uh, the first iteration really for us on a commercial scale was just getting straw and, uh, pasteurizing straw, beginning to make a few blocks, um, on the back porch of this big studio building in downtown Portland, Maine. And, uh, we just literally grew them and just started selling them. You know, it's uh -huh. the same thing everybody goes through where they just enter the back door of a kitchen, like a freak with mushrooms. And they're like, is what I got, you know, and yeah. it's just like either get the hell out of here or come on in, you know? Exactly. So that's kind of like, cause I've called a couple of places and uh, you know, we've had successes here and there, but you think yeah. it's, I got to just go in the back door. Yeah. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah. And, and this time, like we used to do that when we were farming upstate New York, but now the whole COVID thing, like yeah. it's kind of like you're a little bit more like, are they, they going to kick you out? They're going to arrest you and send you back. <laughs> so. Well, even back then, like I was a little uh, conniving about it, like in, not in a crazy way, but I got a yeah. job uh, growing for um, uh, growing uh, for driving for native Maine, which is just like a, a local produce company up in Maine. Oh, cool. And, uh, so I was just like keeping notes of who was buying mushrooms in and from where, and then I would like go find the supposed farms, you know, and I'd be like, you're not cultivating anything. You're just buying stuff in and then yeah. you know, acting as a distributor essentially. And, uh, and that was the list. It was this growing list of farms. And at the uh -huh. same time, Norspor was coming up, Mousem was coming up and there was a company called Bountiful and Eric Milligan from New Hampshire Mushroom Company was there as well. So we all started to like coalesce around this like Northern New England area and then just began, you know, hustling mushrooms in any avenue that we could and yeah. uh, not coming up against one another at first whatsoever. So. Yeah. So it was like a wide open market. Wide. Yeah. We all had the question um, back in that sort of like 2008 to 2014 era of like, why are there no mushrooms at farmer's markets? We thought there, there was a reason. Yeah. Truly just because nobody was cultivating them in that period. Yeah. And now people are, which is awesome. Yeah. It's everywhere. All right. So then you kind of grew and then you started offering, you know, the, um, the rate of fruit bags. And then you, in 20, 2016, you stopped selling mushrooms. Yeah. You just found that you, it was, you were better suited to be selling bags or blocks. Yeah, we were, we sort of came up against this pivot point, um, where we had to be out of a building. We sort of had grown out of the basement, um, expanded into this 3000 square foot facility in Westbrook, Maine. 
And we had pulled in a third business partner at the time, and uh, he was doing all the marketing. Uh, I'm sorry, the markets and the and the sales and the restaurants and the shaking hands and kissing babies yeah. shenanigans. And I was just cultivating. And uh, Christopher in the background was sort of like helping us to just like get any financing for expansion or anything like that. And the three of us just like hustled the daylights out of uh, the block side, which mm-hmm. you know, come to find, we were the only people really in this area besides Eric Milligan at New Hampshire who focused solely on these sawdust based blocks. And at the time we didn't use soybean hulls, you know, we didn't even use wheat middlings or anything like that. It was just sawdust as best we could find it. And some sort of nitrogen additive like bran, if we could find it, it was even hard to find back then. And, uh, and we eventually got to this weird point doing everything sport to store where I was, I had this like lab set up in my house and I'd have pressure cookers running off the, you know, stove all night just making spawn to go drive trucks, you know, in the early morning to come back to just like grow all day long. And, uh, I think eventually I got in a car accident and, uh, I was exhausted. My nephew just came up to visit and we uh, heard that the space below us was turning into like something else and they wanted to kick us out. And we're like, we got to get gone. So we literally, contacted Mousem Valley Mushrooms and uh, North Spore. And I forget, there's a couple others in there. And they're like, I was like, do you just want to buy our inventory? Because we got to make a move. Yeah. And uh, we found this place up in Gardner, Maine. So we accidentally started really selling blocks just to get rid of it. And Uh then we got up to Gardner, Maine and absolutely no intention of not growing mushrooms. We had all the designs and layout for now 30,000 square foot facility for fruit rooms. And we just never built them. We just kept growing blocks and people just kept coming at us for blocks because we were the first and only company that would really just offer certified organic ready to fruit substrate on smaller, you know, scale. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're, you're not the competition, but the other people would have been coming out of kind of square doing the specialty mushrooms yeah. and they probably weren't certified. No. And frankly, at the time they didn't care. Like there's not enough money to like, you know, uh, coalesce this, um, yeah sales pitch or concept or product value to uh many small farms and and uh you know my business partner christopher comes from like the art world uh he ran space gallery these sort of non-profit um multidisciplinary artists all circulating in an area figuring out how to create community and Mm -hmm. um, cultivate these small decentralized events and concepts and groups it's the same stuff for us we really want to grow that decentralized small mushroom farm network and we really want to see people succeed on a small and and big scale yeah absolutely so it was accidental man (laughs) yeah okay so at that time what how many blocks a week were you producing oh man we probably i think we could fit like 150 to 250 in our first steam box which was run on one or two of those like uh crazy Chinese steam generators that like nearly burned your house down because mm-hmm. you know, nobody ever wired them right. And they had that <laughs> stupid button that you'd have to push every hour to get it to like, you know, pull steam out for an hour. Yeah, And it was like, you know, 16, 17 hour runs and uh, it was exhausting. So we got up here, we were doing the same thing. And uh, eventually we realized we were not going to grow any mushrooms anymore. And we realized there was a business marketing strategy in there in the the farms that were buying in substrate from us at the time i think we we're producing 250 to 500 blocks a week you know somewhere okay. in there yeah and uh and that became 
like gone instantaneously. And we just had no intention in fruiting after a while because people were just continuing to work with our substrate. And uh, we realized they were sticking around. We didn't think yeah. that was a viable option. We were like, these people are all going to disappear, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so then so you're doing that, but then eventually you went into the... Um, you went into the spawn and I think that was like 2019, 2020, you built the entire spawn lab. What is that? What did that entail? I was, it was a crazy, crazy time, man. I, uh, let's see, we, we figured out by, uh, by about then that, um, North Spore, for instance, wasn't going to be able to keep up with the, um, the demand and the quality that we were after, uh, not to speak poorly about their spawn at all their market was heavily pushing towards direct to consumer sales, uh-huh. people who uh-huh. wanted to buy a single bag. And, um, yeah. and we needed something that was a little more specific to the consistency at which we needed to cultivate these varieties to not have contamination, um, that was, uh, triggered by spawn. And, uh, and I think by the time we were selling two to 3000 blocks per week, we got to that point in like, uh, in yeah, 2018 or 19, where I said, we got to pull the trigger and we got to figure out how to make our own spawn because it's not going to happen any other way. Uh-huh. Um, we reached out to Magda and Casper at Mycelia around that point. And, uh, simultaneously it was like this weird shift. Um, uh, it was like sometime, you know, in, in this like weird avenue of, uh, of contemplating doing spawn, but realizing how large of an undertaking it was that mm. my uh, wife decided she's going to head out to Arizona and go to school for um, uh, motorcycle mechanics. Cause we've always been into riding bikes and, yeah. uh, and that was sort of her departure from this world. And, um, and she just, you know, she'd been in it. We'd been building this thing, working with the one another, living with one another, cooking with another, eating with another every yeah. single day. And had been together at that point for over a decade. And, uh, <laughs> and she went out to Arizona. So four months go by, we're just sort of planning the initial attack of like, how do we do this? How do we get spawn underway? And then she got sick out in Arizona. So I had to leave and, uh, and head out there to take care of her for four months before we came back here. And by the time I got back, pretty much our spawn director, Tyler Crawford and Mark, um, our third business partner had just sort of like laid it out and they were like, look, we got to do this. And I was like, yep, we Uh got to do this. (laughs) Came back and just started going. And that process was insane. Um, the initial sort of catalyst was to, uh, to send Tyler to Belgium, uh, to work with Casper and Magda at Mycelia. At the time they were like the cutting edge. They really still are in a lot of Uh uh, respects, so we spent a lot of time out there, uh, sort of, or, or Tyler spent a lot of time out there really, uh, just investigating what they were doing, how they were doing it. They helped us draft up sort of the floor plan, the flow, all of the ins and outs of every little facet that nobody does in the spawn industry in the States. Yeah. Um, from vacuum pulse sterilization systems and making use of these, um, large industrial pharmaceutical, uh, sterilizers, so whatever the case may be, we sort of really, uh, you know, use their um, insight to, to develop uh-huh. our facility. And we got lucky. We found used pieces of equipment, uh, new stuff, and we just, <laughs> we just jammed into it, you know? Yeah. Cause I'm sure that kind of equipment's not cheap. It's not. I mean, you've talked to Eric Myers, you know, yeah. he, and you've probably seen his like uh, trials and tribulations with his. Um, oh his gosh, autoclave. yeah. If it's 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 not normal for somebody like of a civilian level to operate a piece of machinery like that. <laughs> yeah, 
but we all fall under this odd sort of uh covenant of uh, i guess it's like an odd uh sort of factor of um of farming and having a usda product so you can be a boiler operator you can be a sterilizer yeah. operator it's very odd so you know the world leaves us alone to sort of make these strange mycelial masses <laughs> yes yes which is which is great because otherwise it's uh well like right now we're I, i've talked about it before in the podcast but we're right in the middle of uh getting going through two development plans with our city for retail space and then the farm the yeah. farm went through relatively easily the retail space has literally just been uh, a nightmare an absolute yeah. like I'm awake, laying awake every morning at 2 a.m. thinking about this nightmare that's on our that's on our yeah. our plate and just the rising costs. Um, yeah, yeah. They, they now want to pave the parking lot, and of course, I won't do asphalt because I hate asphalt with a vengeance. Yeah, so it's, it's not gotta, very farmy. You know? No, no, it's got to be. So the only thing I'll settle for that's what they approve or approve would be cement, which is expensive. Yeah, yeah. So no, it's a. Uh, but you know, to your point, uh, recently I got a, an email from the city manager basically saying, Oh, just wanted to let you know that your excavation work, which you started three days ago, is legal and compliant. Because <laughs> anything else in town, non-agriculture, would have had to pull a permit and would have had to do all the silt fences and all that kind of stuff. But as agriculture, yeah, we don't. And I was really actually interested. Because when you think about it, when you plow a field, that's a heck of a lot more disturbance than any of these uh, these contractors do. And, and when they're like doing a house. It really is. But it's just so different how they treat agriculture in this country compared to, you know, commercial, which is good on one aspect. But on one aspect, you know, obviously the more tillage we have, the, the worse we are off as a nation. But Yeah. Well, that's where you have this like pretty great push for there to be vertical farms you know and, yeah. and, and things that uh mushroom farming is vertical by its nature you know if you don't go up with real estate you're really missing the point yeah and uh and farming in general has sort of started to approach that you know on a small scale and it'll get a lot bigger in short order um and i think that's when those um that's when those regulations are going to come in and really create chaos you know food yeah. is not a cash crop this isn't you know it land of uh making apps and whatever yeah. makes a ton of money off of nothing now yeah yeah i mean and the problem is when you try to push it that way that's when the quality of the food drops yeah. dramatically i mean you look at the cost of food in let's say italy and just the the artisanal aspect of that yeah and yeah you pay for it because the amount of hours and time that's gone into that but then you move to the u.s and like these cafos and yeah. and just the the sterility, just the repeatability and the empty calories. Yeah. Yeah. And mushroom cultivation has this absurd sense of sterility that is necessary on a lot of platforms yeah. and a lot of reasons and levels, but you go into a meat uh, packing manufacturer, you go to any of these other like strange places around the world and you're like, where, where's the filters? Where are the cleanly, you know, where's the cleaning protocols? They're not, yeah. there. it's just pig's blood and chaos, you know? And it's very strange to come from this world where automatically we have to be extremely clean, careful, and uh -huh. sterile. And the rest of the world's like, you just put an expiration date on it. Who cares? You know? <laughs> so, so but dive into that a little bit, because that is something that, you know, when I started playing around with mushrooms, I was like, oh, we've got to be really sterile. And, you know, obviously you're trying to keep the trikes out of the, the fruiting rooms and all that. Yeah. Um, now, once you introduce the spawn, it's not as important if you have a really a strong uh, strain, but still, it's definitely something you don't want to get have any contaminants in. Yeah. 
I think um, it's really interesting that uh, coming from the block world versus like the straw log world or these yeah. uh, large open beds, cult the cultivation of mushrooms and the level of contaminants come with um, how big you're going. You know, the mm. bigger you go, the wider the variables, the more the more like neurospora can take out an entire farm as opposed to on a small scale, you see it and you can rid your room of it pretty fast and be done with it. Yeah. So it becomes orders of magnitude in terms of sterility that really are essential for those, you know, setups to get a good substrate, like you're saying. So that's why we poured as much concentration time, money and effort into spawn as we could, because we didn't see it being done here. On the mm -hmm. bigger scale, on the smaller scale. I mean, I don't know how many people out there have like ordered boxes of spawn from Lambert and it just comes like smashed shit with like, you know, neurospore and trick growing out of it. Oh gosh. And it has just like a label on the side that basically is a million words saying like, screw you, we don't care. That's literally yeah. written on the box. We just didn't want to take that approach, but we wanted the the highest quality of spawn possible. So it's sort of become this interesting uh this interesting balance of like how far do you have to go for sterility purposes? And I think spawn is the utmost important side substrate. You know, it really depends upon where you're going with it and how much, yeah. you're doing. but to be fair, you know, we keep everything as sterile and as clean and HEPA filtered as possible um, and overpressured as possible just because yeah. you can't control people past a point, you know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really interesting because you look at the block culture and then you look at um, the guy we had in our summit. Um, I'm forgetting his name, but he was uh, just a, a guy that had a woods. He had all in the woods and uh, um, it was just bl blew me away. Cause it was completely like no sterility at all. It was yeah. just, okay, a log, I'm a drill, put a little bit of wax on it and kick them out there and they grow. If they grow, if they don't, they don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was his full-time living and the little tiny hauler in the back in Kentucky. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's interesting, you know, because you look at that side of things, but then you look at, you know, where you guys come from. And obviously it comes down to just the intenseness of the production and the yields you're going for. So he obviously has seen much, much lower yields. Yeah. Um, and obviously if the world was the end or, you know, something crazy was to happen crazy. he would still be producing mushrooms for a year where all of us with we wouldn't be able to run our autoclaves so yeah 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 it's totally true well and i think that there's a there's a large portion of the people in the mushroom world today who are um extremely sensitive to that and i respect it full on and, and foremost that if you want to do things on a very very low tech scale uh -huh. you uh -huh. should i think it's super important to do those things and to know how they're done um, but you look at the, you look at the cost and, um, you look at the, the, uh, sort of efficiency behind the food security that some of the companies like us are after. Yeah. And I'm less concerned about doomsday and zombies and the apocalypse and more about when a freak storm happens or the next Katrina happens. Yeah. How in the hell do you consider food security, just getting food from over here to over here? That's not food security. You know, that's not even sustainable in any way, shape or form. Look at what just happened in Texas. Oh know? yeah. Yeah. So if, if you sort of look at these things from a survivability standpoint, sure. Should every single person grow some form of food in their house? Yeah. Yeah. But 
in terms of the, the amount. And they should be fruiting blocks of mushrooms from you guys under the sink. <laughs> right, 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 right. Why not, man? Why not? And I think there's going to be a larger push for that. We've already seen it through COVID, yeah. you know, a number yeah. of us who accidentally had blocks online during like that COVID sort of beginnings were just like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah it's gonna become a thing you know and uh yeah. and a lot of farms blew up from it you know and it was really interesting to see those sales carry a lot of people through the early days of uh, of that struggle yeah so let's talk a little bit about your marketing so at the beginning uh, you were just hustling the mushrooms the back of the the restaurants but once you start producing blocks that, i'm sure that changed your marketing completely changed well, it, it didn't, it didn't like, uh, when you're the mushroom people, they don't even like some dude has your number in a kitchen and then passes it on and kitchen towns like Portland, you know, the chefs just yeah. circulate from one restaurant to another. Oh, I got too drunk there and they kicked me out. Now I work over here and they yeah. carry your mushrooms with them. So yes. they leave a trail of products wherever they go and you're the dude still supplying them. <laughs> so, yeah. So we were at that point at which like we just knew all the chefs, we knew all the restaurants and we were supplying everybody and anybody, farmers markets all the way through to the, you know, people just coming by the farm. And then at some point um, we thought that there would be this large monumental switch where we'd have to really start marketing heavily towards uh, um, people who wanted blocks. Yeah. Like, it really just turned into no, you know, like we, everybody knew who we were because we were the only ones doing it, you know? Yeah. It was very strange. And even now with people sort of dipping into that world, uh, Mossy Creek was there right before us uh, in terms of selling blocks. TR came in, uh, Eric started slinging blocks, Far West Fungi, and then KSS came out with their sort of organic yeah. option. And uh, it became an option. It became a yeah. real thing that before us, there was um, there was this propensity to be like, if you don't do it, sport a store, you ain't shit. And it really just wasn't true. It was like, you know, you, you really can just buy a portion of this in. We have three separate business models here. We got culture preservation and spawn yeah. development and fruiting, and then fresh mushroom sales and distribution. So if you pick one of those and go after them, whichever your heart desires, yeah. specialize. And uh, through that like early days of specialization, we found that people just kept coming to us because they found us as an option. You know, yeah. it was a very small world back even just in 2016. Now yeah. it's massive. You go on Instagram and it's like a 20 new farms a day. <laughs> like how more, how much more ridiculous can some of these farm names get? But, <laughs> but you know, yeah. it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I think the, the attraction, obviously there's always that attraction for growing things, but the thing about yeah. mushrooms is they're so fast. It's yeah. like literally, I mean, if you have a hot uh, room and it's, it's the hours go by and things change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we're running, so we run, uh, we run a, like a two week production cycle. We have like, we have some really big orders every two weeks. And so the week between we run about 50 degrees and then we yeah. bump the temperature to 60 about seven days before we want to start. And then they, they really push them. Um, and so we're kind of, that's how we're running our, um, our production, sure, but yeah. it's just so interesting to see the difference from 50 to 60 degrees and leave this, the speed of growth. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Like on a cultivation side in terms of, uh, incubation versus fruiting, one of the, uh, biggest conversations I get into with people, uh, on consultation calls or basically new people who will, uh, they'll see like Michael from Southwest mushrooms, yep. uh, just jamming these like gorilla grow tents and like converting their cannabis grows to mushroom yep. grows. And they call it so many questions and there's, there's a large learning curve there when you're taking these uh, designs and sort of flipping them over to do something completely different. Um, but 
there's also these like there's also just these weird entrances to that sort of world that uh that people are allowed to get into now that i think allow them to just kind of like grow and and just do their own thing on a very small scale which is it's just so it's it's amazing well i think one of the biggest things is having access to ready to fruit blocks or at least you know sterilized stuff that all like so what we do is we call we colonize and then fruit so the the blocks come in just basically inoculated for us oh cool um which works actually really good it's one extra step for us but the price break is there enough for us to make it work yeah um but i mean that has eliminated twenty thousand dollars for the equipment yeah absolutely so it's made basically it's it's made us be able to enter the space for a fraction of the cost and um support another local farmer so totally yeah. Um, so let's talk through, you know, we talked about the marketing that like, you know, obviously the part of this, the reason why people came back is your quality is because you just have second and quality on everything you guys produce. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Um, yeah we try yeah. hard. It's, it's quality. Yeah. Us. We're, we're in a net, we, our whole business model is like maintain customers. That's yeah. The, you know? Yeah. If you didn't maintain them. It would, it would be rough. <laughs> yeah. And I've actually left other people in the industry because that very thing. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, and some, you say like, I don't have to market, but your marketing is that customer service that, you know, Oh, if yeah. you need something, okay, just call Eric at Catholic and STEM because they got the quality and they're going to take care of you. Yeah. That's sort of where we've turned it around now. And, uh, we're using that Micah wizards podcast, which is just conversations between mushroom yeah. farmers. It doesn't, there's no, you know, if fans or rhymes or reasons or anything about it, it's just like conversational. So you have these four hour conversations, uh, these one hour conversations, whatever they are, and they're being put out there to these, you know, plentiful amount of farmers that are, um, erupting out of seemingly thin air and getting into yeah. it. And they all of a sudden realize that like, you don't have to be crazy to get into this. You got to be mildly nuts because you know, <laughs> you're an entrepreneur at heart and like, yeah. you're not normal. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, when you have this like wall to bounce off of, and most of us mushroom farmers are pretty hermetic. We, we hide and we just work yeah. and we innovate and we just grow. We don't care about like the, uh, the world around us at large all the time because it's a, it's a very inward process. There's v- many mer- variables to really control. And, uh, and this, this like version of a podcast that we've been able to put out seems to be driving people back towards us as we help to sort of spread the word of other mushroom farms, what they're uh-huh. about, what they're doing. And in turn, they come back to us to be able to get spawn and get started or get blocks and get started. So yeah, that's our real first step into marketing. It really is. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. So you have four hour episodes. Yeah, it's it's obnoxious. Like, you, if you want to listen to Eric Milligan tell the best jokes in the world uh, for four hours, it's like it's the greatest podcast for that. All know? right, I'm, I, I'm intrigued. You know? I, yeah. I didn't know, man. You know, I started this thing like in in my like she shed of a spot back here in the motorcycle shop, and I I was like, this is going to be really, really strange. Like, I had no idea where these conversations were going to go. I don't know how much you uh, sort of have evolved in your podcast adventure, but it's been it's been weird. Like I've had, uh, you know, 50% of the people be like, I have no idea what I just said. Can I listen to that before you send it out? And you're like, yeah. Oh sure. Like I didn't anticipate any <laughs> of this stuff. You know, I was just like, Oh cool. Like, uh, these are weird conversations and I'll, I'm like a, a blank slate. You can, I'll, I'll say anything. I don't care. And, uh, I, I own whatever I say. And, uh, 
even if it makes me blush, but, <laughs> but it's still, I, I just speak from the heart when it comes to that stuff. And I really appreciate what these farms are just doing, whether they're new or whether they're old, mm-hmm. they, they offer something integral. And a lot of us in this mushroom world have had this idea that if we could somehow map the, uh, the entirety of these farms and, and help them gain exposure, then we're sort of growing as a whole. And we're not at this like pinnacle uh-huh. point of like i'm out competing you and you're going down because i don't feel that way and i know a lot of the farms that i spend a lot of time um, talking with don't feel that way yeah either. well I, I think what we and again it, it always helps to have a villain yeah um and for us the villain is just big mushroom producing is that <laughs> right. that you know the poor quality i mean like the one the, the, the one thing we repeatedly get from customers is oh my gosh this was so different yeah than what i buy in the store yeah. And it's because it is, they're, they're yeah. so much fresher. They're just completely different types. Um, yeah. yeah. So having that aspect out there is, you know, that, that to us is, and obviously still like, you know, I find, you know, many people in that industry are still very helpful. And so, yeah, yeah. but I think the thing is that people just need to eat more mushrooms because there's such a new thing on the, on the, on the landscape of food. They really are. And they're becoming integral to the value added stuff too, whether it's yeah. like, you know, vegan or vegetarian options all the way through to just like protein fillers in um, frozen foods. You'd never even uh-huh. know were there, you know, yeah. they're just there now because it's an option and it's a commodity. So it's a rare one still, and it's still growing, but the States really, the United States alone just eats like 1% of the world's population or world's um, a mushroom yeah. Um so it's, it's, it's still got so much growth potential. It's unbelievable. unbelievable. Yeah. And I think it's just an education thing because that's the number one question we get is uh, what do I do with them? So that's why yeah. the recipes and, and pushing and just like showing people how to cook them and integrate them. And because you can put them in so many different things. Yeah. 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 That's totally true. I, I miss that. Um, I miss that interaction at like a farmer's market level. You know, it's, it's obnoxious past the point when you're dealing with the same people, like asking you for cubes or they ask what this is. And you're like, it's Rishi. You just don't want to answer the same questions over and over, but there's something that you lose when you get into this side of the world where you're just, you're like a supplier of raw materials at this point. Yeah. So, well, you lose some of the wonder. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the reasons where we're back into it is because we just love that interaction. And, and it's really yeah. cool for the kids because we have a, a six-year-old now and almost a four-year-old. Nice. And just that's them going age. out every, yeah. And them going out every day, like today, uh, we were, <laughs> we were weeding strawberries. Well, we've been weeding strawberries over the last, it's a filler job. So it needs to yeah. be done in the spring. So, you know, over the last couple of days, we've been, you know, hacking away at it Yeah. or our, our farm manager has been, I haven't been doing too much, uh, <laughs> but they found a strawberry already and i don't even know like i mean like that must thing must have bloomed in like january and under snow i don't know how it happened deadheaded it, man. Yeah. <laughs> but like the kids like today they just ran out both of them were like peering down over it checking on yeah. it looking at it and you know that's the thing i think that you know obviously consumers have some of that aspect of things into them obviously kids display it so much more innocently and they just don't care yeah they don't they're just full of wonder yeah, but getting back to that of like educating the, I mean, that's the one thing people love to do when they come out to the farm. They just yeah. want to walk in the mushroom room and check, and like, this is how they grow. Yeah. And this is that kind. And this is what they smell like. Yeah. Because it's got that musty, um, cool smell in there. And so they're just, they're fascinated by all that aspect of things. Well, it's a strange environment for a, a child, right? Like we're yeah. used to living in these like hyper air conditioned, orchestrated, organized dinners on the, on the run mm-hmm. going to, you have your whole day orchestrated and planned. And I think 
innately children know that like when you go into a fruit room, the variables are a plenty from that, like mm-hmm. foggy craziness to the fans, to the lights, to all of the organisms, it doesn't feel anything but otherworldly. So they get yeah. so stoked on it. And it's so cool to watch. I remember watching it with my late wife's nieces and nephews. They would just run in there like a bat out of hell, just like stoked, <laughs> you know, and I was like, cool. Free harvesters for them. <laughs> yes. Yes. Put them on the shiitakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, don't give them scissors. No, they're poor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's, it's really interesting. And I, I think too, is that's the one thing that the small farm movement can work on is really sharing those stories. I see it like we see some yeah. great production, but let's get the cameras out. Let's just share online what's going on and what it looks like. Yeah. And because I think that's the major difference between uh, the small scale farm and the, and the industrial farm is the people and the, yeah. the aspect of just seeing, seeing it from the, the, the farmer's eye. Yeah, it's so true, man. Yeah, you, you kind of lose touch with that a little bit um, when you're so hyper-focused on the variable stuff. Um, but yeah, it all comes back to farming. I remember having a couple interactions with uh, a few different farmers at like the Portland Farmers Market, um, not to like mention farm names, but they they clearly looked at us like you're not farmers you know they were like why in the hell are you here it was like the the undertone because it was like we weren't overall wearing like super dirty carrot you know yielding cabbage heads i was like (laughs) this shit is still food and it's very hard to grow like i'm sure you know i'm sure like elliot coleman would be proud that you're mad at me but like for real like so there's this like hostility in the early days towards mushroom cultivation as the only thing on the table, which I think is why the varieties erupted uh-huh. when these small decentralized farms started getting into the markets because they had to have variety. They had yeah. to, you know. Yeah, you had to have a reason for them to come back next week and try something else. Yeah, you really did, man. It's yeah, it's true. And and people still do now. You know? Yeah. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. All right, let's move into, you've you've done mushrooms for a long time now. You've, you've talked, you've done a ton of consultations. What would be your advice for someone getting into the, let's say they're just starting out, what are three things they need to know? Um, yeah, uh, in terms of like business in general, right? Uh, I often see um, these early off excited farmers who are enthralled by the idea of uh, capital um, gain from growing mushrooms. And the reality check there is really reminding them that this is 50% of the work has been done on our side, but you still have 50% of the work to do. And that's seven day a week work. It's not like we made your life that much easier we just made it less expensive and a little easier. You still need to like pay attention to this stuff. And, uh, and I think the, the crazier conversations I have are with couple farmers and I'm like, do you guys like one another enough to do this? Like, 
in all seriousness, because you're going to see one another way too much if you're going into it together. And you have to have a hundred percent of a AOK attitude towards like just working seven days a week and yeah. uh, sleeping at the farm or whatever it takes stuff breaks, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's number one for sure. Is put in the work and realize it's not, it's not the pie in the sky. It's not, you know, easy gig. It's something you have to be yeah. willing to do every single day. Yeah. This isn't weed 20 years ago. This is mushrooms in the 21st century. You're growing lettuce, man. It's funny shapes of water at the end of the day. So <laughs> it's just all it is, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That that's, that's the number one thing I, I tend to just say now, uh, especially for like people who are extremely um, green in terms uh -huh. of they're like, they're stoked, you know, and they're really into it. And the other uh, thing is to just not, um, the, the other main thing I really try to get across to people is, is to not take everything all on all at once, like really step into this slow uh -huh. and, uh, and step into it slow, but also measure your value from the beginning. There's so many farms out there who have this propensity uh, initially to like look up the whatever it is, the the um, price uh, on a national scale for oyster mushrooms. And they're like, cool, I can sell this for $350 a pound. And it's like, no, you can sell it for 20 bucks a pound. You know, nobody is going to second guess you. Nobody is going to even ask a question. Start higher, but don't uh -huh. start higher just for the higher reason. Start higher because it's the only way you're going to survive at the end of the day. Yeah. People have this weird scalability factor that comes in and they're not humble enough to support the product that they're actually creating. You know, you really have to like balance those scales and, and, and be uh, humble and egotistical enough to know that the value that you're putting in needs to be maintained if you want to keep growing. So you can't just drop your price to the bottom, trying to clean out the market because you never survive. No. And, and oftentimes I don't even think that it's a competition related thing. I think it's honestly like, who's going to pay $6 or who's going to pay $10 for mushrooms. I better make yeah. it six. And you're like, dude, no, <laughs> Yeah, your overhead is enormous. These, these facilities uh, that crank out like hundreds of thousands of pounds a day, they can, they are getting the $3 or $2 a pound. Like you got to look at the scale here. It's totally yeah. different. You know, <laughs> it's a commodity compared to a specialty um, and artisanal food. Absolutely. And you have yeah. to look at it that way. And, uh, and if you start that from the get go, you're going to be in a far better position going forward because you can make it work. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. What would you give someone who's like advanced in the mushroom they're doing mushrooms and maybe they like, they're not sure what things to tweak to go to the next level. Um, I suppose it depends where they're at. Some of the like more intriguing conversations uh, that like Tyler uh, Crawford, our spawn director and I will have are with um, bigger facilities doing value added products. And they're trying to develop innovative ways to, you know, create something um, in a very streamlined and uh, um, profit-driven manner, whether it's like, a, you know, the fruit bodies and the organism and ground up for a powder, whatever it is, they're looking for innovation. Mm. And I think I always suggest to them that no matter what your scale is, you have to test things out every single day. Like I have a bunch of jugs of different types of chemicals in the back of my car right now that I'll test as soon as this podcast is over and I'll go into the lab and do it. And I've been doing that every day for the last decade. If you're not constantly testing, innovating and uh, 
um, setting up experiments and controls, you have no momentum, no foot in it, nothing. And, and it's, you almost become disillusioned and complacent mm. and uh, you can't, you know, bring in fresh blood, bring in the like cube grower that you knew back in the eighties, you know, they have like knowledge that they're going to just implicitly inject into the conversation um, and, uh, and look elsewhere. You can't be a self-proclaimed expert just because you've been in it for a decade or two or three. Yeah. You don't know anything. And I say that all the time. I only know what I know and I just share anything yeah. that's anecdotal or evidence-based just to help, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now you guys have scaled the business. I think you have like 16 employees now. Yeah. I think we're 16 or 17 as of Monday. <laughs> yeah. So with that growth, what has been the keys to, you know, making sure you meet the payroll every week or, you know, yeah. or just how does that work? Yeah. It's uh, it's nothing I'm familiar with. You know, I come from a family of entrepreneurs and uh, people who work for themselves, but there's a mm. big difference between starting a business uh, that employs people um, and starting a business that you're just running yourself. You're your own responsibility at that point. When you got people, it has to be at the forefront. Uh-huh. It's gotta be your motivation for getting up and continuing to do everything to like survey the surroundings so for me, it's just 100% delegation to people who are vested in this uh, company in a very integral way. Like they're not necessarily tied in on a financial level, but we treat every employee here as if like they have an extreme um, uh, responsibility uh, to like whatever they're, they're doing. And we treat them as such and they treat us as such. It's so often that I, I come across uh, business owners who do nothing but like, it doesn't matter, not necessarily in the mushroom world, just yeah. across the board. They're just like, they hate their employees. They treat them like trash and they're just a cog in the wheel. I don't do that. I talk to everybody. I make sure every, I know where everybody's at and uh, I don't have to do their roles because I'm sure that they're, they're doing it, you know? Yeah. That's, that's really important to scalability. Um, is managing your time and putting the right people in the right positions and, and uh, continuing to converse with them daily to make sure everything is smooth. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, how, what's your hiring process like? It's, uh, you know, it's been lackadaisical at times. Um, and then other times it's been extremely um, important that we like vet heavily for like a position. Uh, Tyler Crawford, like uh, our spawn uh, director, uh, Alex um, Winstead, who you should totally talk to from Cascadia Mushrooms, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> he called me like out of the blue and uh, he's like, hey, uh, one of my employees um, is moving to Maine and you should hire him because I don't want to let him go. And that's enough for me. I was like, yeah. I'm hired, man. You know, <laughs> not only is Alex a stand up cat, he's also yeah. like Midwestern sincerity. So I was like, this, he's not lying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We interviewed Alex for the, the, uh, the summit and the, oh, his right. mushroom operation just it's blows fantastic. my mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, yeah. he's, he's one of the most humble cats and one of the kindest and most uh-huh. like, you know, he's open to sharing anything. And, uh, so if somebody like him says, hire this dude, you're like, sweet. And then, yeah. uh, and then we have, um, other people in this business. Kelsey's are, you know, that's who anybody who uh-huh. contacts cap and STEM, she's going to be the one to, uh, sort of, uh, uh, reach back out. And, uh, she getting her position was a, a very like vetted thing. Um, one of our business partners was heading off for, uh, Australia and, and we were like, we got to basically fill your role with somebody. This is like almost picking a person to fill an owner's role. And, uh, and she's taking it on full steam, but 
man, we interviewed some doozies for like months. Really? <laughs> wow. Yeah. 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 And it's not as if the job market is like uh, huge up here, but you know how it is now with like indeed and you have monster and you have all these different yeah. places in which you can sort of go about hiring people. Um, you have to be super careful to like not read too much into a resume. Like yeah. people in, even if they just worked at Chick-fil-A in a dentist office, they probably have way more to offer than the resume says. So, yeah. and, uh, usually it's like, just get a phone interview. If somebody like seems right and be like, okay, you're not insane. And then yeah, yeah, <laughs> bring yeah. Him in for a, uh, bring them in for an in-person interview and go from there. Yeah. That being said, it's like letting them talk is the best part because you'll get the, the nervousness over in the first interview. And then usually in the second interview or by the end of the first one, you can sort of see where they're at, but specifically for the uh, more integral day-to-day um, like physical jobs um, mm-hmm. that are very much like the demanding sweeping, folding bags, making spawn, whatever it is, running the kettles, the mixers, the autoclave, those are really uh, put people in the gig uh, for a day and see what happens. And then at the end of the day, ask them, do you like this job? If they say, I don't know, don't hire them, you know, yeah, and be okay with that. It's really about uh, making them certain that they're comfortable. Cause how many times have you applied for a job? You have these weird, great interviews. And yeah. Like this job sucks. Yeah. 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 So, you know, we've been hiring heavily this spring. We hired two, three positions in our online business and then one position here on the farm, assistant farm manager. And um, the worst job on the farm, I think, is pulling plastic at the beginning of the season. Yeah, and, uh, I'm there, man. Yeah, and, uh, and so we love the, the biodegradable stuff, although it's not technically certified organic. But so we're still using the regular old plastic and uh, we, we pulled all the plastic we had to this spring. Yes. I think it was yesterday and uh, got back in the car and I was talking about, Oh man, that glad that's done. And um, our new farm manager, she's like, Oh yeah, that was fine. She says, I didn't care. I kind of enjoyed it. And I'm like, yeah. wow. See, not everybody's as crazy as the person running the business. And yes. like, some people really <laughs> enjoy like doing a job and you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That yeah. catches me off guard. Even still, some people just want to fold bags. Some people yeah. just want to, pack orders and get out and go home and do whatever they do. And that's awesome. You know, that's really, that's like, uh, I have to remind myself that, uh, if you own the business, you're the crazy person and not everybody's going to be on your, uh, assumed mental level of, uh, of, uh, sort of craziness assumptions. Yeah. 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 And well, just, I think the thing is the business owner and I think it it varies, but I I feel like, you know, I think when we first talked, I kind of connected because I was like, Oh, he's my level of crazy. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's seven days. I mean, like, and I, I say this all the time because it's, it seems absurd and it, it makes me feel bad at moments, but like, you know, my wife going through like two solid years of treatment, I was still at the farm every day, you know? And yeah. like, it, it makes me feel, I feel like a dick on the inside, but like, that's you. She knew that. I knew that. I'm not yeah. going to deny what I am. You know, I'm obsessive and like utterly like dug into something and nothing on the peripheral is going to stop me. You know? Yeah. It's, it's about time management at that point when you, you decide what's important in your life and you, you have to be able to pay attention to the things like family, uh, like friends, like mm-hmm. other hobbies that aren't going to drive you absolutely batshit when you can't get something to work at the farm. <laughs> I like that. Okay. So what other hobbies do you have that keep the, the kind of like the de-stress? 
Oh man. It's uh, you know, the motorcycle thing is huge. Uh-huh. Uh, I think a lot of people think the podcast thing is a, uh, is a hobby. And I'm like, no, man, this is me keeping my finger on the pulse and, and remaining like very connected with the farms that I'm a uh, part of. Um, yeah, man, I went to art school, so I still draw every day. I write a lot. I do a lot of like letter writing, um, which oh. sounds bizarre, but, uh, it's a good, like, you know, don't wake up and flick through the Instagram feeds all day. Um, and then, yeah, just, just taking long motorcycle trips, man. I got a bunch of friends that we just, we just pick a place and go, you know, Uh Uh that sounds amazing. Yeah. It's where it's at, man. And it it kind of like bridges the gap between the safety of like, you know, being on a farm and then you're just like, this could be it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so go back to that time management part because I think that one's super yeah. important for farmers is how do you how do you keep track of everything how do you make sure you focus on the priorities yeah it's hard man um, especially as you're a growing business like we've doubled in size every year for the last seven years yeah it makes sense that's not a rational thing to say to anybody because they're all like what are you still doing then <laughs> you're like growing um, and we're bootstrapping it we're not like getting you know massive investments intentionally and uh, yeah time management becomes this thing where uh, if people start emailing you, you just have to be organized enough to say, this is the chunk of things uh, that I just put over here for tomorrow. And then you just, I make a list. I'm a list maker when it comes uh-huh. down to it. Um, I was so talking paper list. My, yeah. Just literally paper list, typewriter list, whatever the case may be. You just list these things out and you check them off or you just crumble them up and throw them away and make a new one. And even if you're rewriting the same stuff on the list, it keeps you inherently focused, you know, uh-huh. and you can keep coming back to it. I'm really like a printed matter fiend in an old school book binder at heart. And I just want to make certain that I can like archive, condense and look back at stuff. Cause if you don't know how the hell you got there, you're no, you know, you're no help to yourself going forward. There's no navigation tools. Um, so implicitly like that organization is, uh, is how you continue to sort of keep your time management, um, uh, in check, Uh Uh but also just being okay with just like literally shutting your phone off and getting gone for a day or an hour or whatever. That's hard for people, especially, you know, COVID day and age, everybody's like, gotta be cued in what everybody's doing. Yeah. You know, go fish. (laughs) Fish Yeah. man. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, for me now it's more cause I like up until this spring, I was pretty much three quarters of full time in the office. Yeah. And now I'm like 50%, if not 40% in the office and everything else is out of time and just, you know, yeah. just going and sitting on the tractor and yep. this, that, and the other. The fields um, don't get any smaller, man. You know? They do not. No. And I've got big plans. Actually, I was sitting with one of the guys in town here. Um, he had something for sale. And anyway, I was talking to him and I was like, I was giving him the 10 year vision. It's like, how are you gonna afford this, man? You're like, where's all this money coming from? I was like, everybody asks. I was like, well, it's gonna come someplace, somewhere, sometime. It'll happen, you know. Yeah. As, as, <laughs> just it's, it's gonna take time. But oh yeah, when when you pull in like partners or concepts or ideas, they don't flesh out. My number one thing is we'll just do it ourselves. Like I don't care, you know. Like nothing is gonna stop people like you and I in that same respect from just doing it. You know, uh-huh. like just, just do the thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get started. Yeah. That's absolutely true. What advice would you leave to, um, you know, new farmers who are, you know, it doesn't have to be a mushroom farmer, but someone who's yeah. like, just, you know, getting into the space. Yeah. Uh, 
It's a hard one. I think at the end of the day, uh, Eric Milligan said this on the Michael Wizards podcast, but he was talking to um, a farmer at a farmer's market and uh, you know, he was, he was like, you know, they were asking him about his mushroom farm and he was saying, you know, it's going, some days are better than others. And, uh, and they said, well, you know, whoever this farmer was, he was like, you know what, you know, farmers typically say each year as you close out and kind of finish for the season, because we're at school teachers at heart for a little while is you made enough to farm another year. Mm. And uh, if you don't look at it like that, you're not going to enjoy it. You're just going to be pissed when stuff starts to really tear itself apart. Because at the end of the day, a motorcycle destroys itself as you're riding it. You know, a car is designed to die. You know, these mushroom farms need a ton of upkeep and so do regular uh-huh. farms too. So you yeah. just have to enjoy the fragments of whatever it is that you like look back from 30,000 feet and you're like, oh my God, I can see myself. What am I doing? If you're questioning what you're doing, don't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So let's, 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 let me, let me think about, let me dive into that a little Sorry, bit. That was esoteric is all hell. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Cause I like what you said there. Cause I think, you know, obviously we talk about being profitable because profitability in a farm is so important. Sure, sure. But I think what you're also saying is the road to get there is going to be filled with twists and turns and broken motorcycles and fruiting yeah. rooms that fry themselves for this or that reason or the other. Yeah. And you have to realize that part of the reason why you do this is just, you just love the game. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. There's a, I forget the name of the author. If it comes to me, I will uh, say it, but you know, it's this old like samurai guy and he wrote basically self-help for samurais, which yes. I think is awesome. And, uh, you know, it comes along with these like 21 steps or whatever it is. And, uh, and basically it's, it's getting to all these inherent points that like, if you don't enjoy like all of these things and the little components that go into them, you're, you're really going to struggle with like anything bigger picture. You know, uh-huh. because you really like, you know, if somebody comes to me with an issue, I'm not like, I don't have the time for this shenanigans. Get out of here. It's yeah. like you pause what you're doing, you figure out how to write it down. And then you, you just take that for what it is and, and you go from there and then you can come back to what you're doing. It's very much just figure out how to juggle everything, you know, uh-huh. wear all the hats. Yes. Wear all the hats. And then once you get to the, then you start scaling and adding yeah. people to start ma- take those hats from you. Yeah, absolutely. And that becomes, uh, you can't get resentful at that point when somebody really, you know, messes up, um, that you've trained or that you've, you know, entrusted with a job. People don't have the ability to really like, uh, self monitor their own mistakes. So you Uh can't say that you wouldn't have made the same mistake that your employee that you entrusted to do something just made. So you have to be very conscious that people are just people and you can't judge them for anything that they do at Uh all. You just hope. And then you like, you keep like encouraging them and then you challenge them a little bit with new things. And eventually these things really tune themselves in. And, uh, and it, it seems to work out for me anyways. Yeah. 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 I think you're, you're absolutely right on that with dealing with employees is I've, I've definitely been on some farms where I would, yeah, I, I quit or it just, was oh, yeah. Not, yeah, because they, they had no patience for the people working for them. And I, I yeah. realized that, I mean, just today uh, we were out working on the farm and I made a, we spray painted something first to make exactly where we're supposed to do something. Yeah. And then I completely screwed it up. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I'm going to be, it's going to be a, a, a sawzall and some digging uh, to get yeah. it straightened out. But um, 
you know, I, I could have blamed my employee who was watching the trench that they were supposed to be the one, you know, in charge of that. But it came back to me is that, yeah. And we're like, how did this, we don't know how it happened. It just happened. And <laughs> it we're just, just going to roll with it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, stuff will happen and stuff will get fried. But, um, and then I think those, those points are always a, a point for learning of how can we make sure this doesn't happen again or put a process or an SOP into place. Yeah, um, for sure. For sure. But yeah, that's kind of the important stuff that I think it has to come out of those those failure points. Yeah. It's also how you train the trainers, so to speak. And, mm. uh, I'm like not Mr. Zen Buddha mad dog. I ride motorcycles, drink booze and get crazy, but yeah. I have this like, uh, very, uh, uh, like kind of this thing that just, it drives me to sort of, uh, be connected to that in some way. And this sort of Taoistic tradition of you can move quite slow at something, presumably from the outsider's perspective, but be moving faster than anybody else around you. And it's because of the efficiency at which you're moving. And it's as simple as something from folding bags with being very intentional about each like movement to, you know, your literal movement while you're packing pallets. It's it on a cheap, like uh, industrial level, it's McDonald's kitchens on a reality check level. It's very much like how you get the most out of your life. Do you wake up every morning struggling for like how you're putting your clothes on and what you're doing? Or do you just have an intent to it? And do you switch it up purposely? Do you like, you know, navigate your life that way? Um, mm. Some people don't, but I think you can train people to do that in a work sense and yeah. automatically, you know? Yeah. 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 Thinking about moving the, moving the tray closer, yeah. you know, that, that even those half steps and quarter steps, yeah. you know, repeated, repeated enough, it, it's massive time efficiencies. There's a burnout factor there for people. And, um, when you can sort of reset their analysis of, uh, of their surroundings, just by, uh, instigating these, like, you know, easy conversations, it's as simple as safety, you know, mm-hmm. uh, don't go too fast. You know, nobody needs to go faster, faster, faster. It's like, just, you know, be safe about it and very intent and, uh, uh-huh. um, and specific about it. Yeah. You don't have to run back and forth four times. If you bring all the tools the first time. Right. That's true. That's why all my tools are on a cart with four wheels. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yes. <laughs> Lots of concrete. <laughs> yep. Yep. For sure. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you coming on, um, hanging out with us. This is always uh, fun chatting with you and uh, seeing what you're up to and uh, look forward to watching you guys uh, keep scaling and growing and uh, supplying the mushroom industry. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for doing what you're doing. The the podcast thing, like I said, is new to me, but what you guys are doing is very cool. And I, I enjoy tuning into all of them. So keep it up. Oh, thank you. Yeah, man. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Next week on the podcast, join me as I interview Woody from Rootbound Farm. Woody farms in his backyard in Maryland where he grows a wide range of vegetables. He also sells value-added products, including kimchi. They also produce their own soaps as well as a few other products for the local markets. Now, he recently had a kind of disagreement or discussion, as we like to call it, with their local city about what they can and can't do in their neighborhood. So he shares about that. We chat about government overreach and keeping small farms thriving in urban environments. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.